it's really true. There is like a goodness we find in Jesus that um, that extends beyond science. It's not in conflict with science necessarily, but it it gives us a way to engage with other other realities that we can't in science, and that's that's good. In that sense, I think that Jesus is greater than what I found in science. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to be continuing on my series of science and religion podcasts. On previous episodes, I've interviewed the director of the Vatican Observatory and also a nuclear scientist, to discuss their uh, opinions on the intersection between these supposedly divergent fields. On this episode, I want to delve more deeply into one of the leading firestorms in the debate between science and religion, and that is creationism against evolution. As always, if you enjoy this content, please hit like on your app, Please share this podcast with your friends. Uh, I hope you all enjoy it. And feel free to join the discussion on our face group at The Rational View. S. Joshua Swimidas is a physician and a scientist. He is also an associate professor of laboratory and genomic medicine at Washington University in St. Louis. His group uses artificial intelligence to advance science at the intersection of biology, chemistry, and medicine. He is the author of The Genealogical Adam and Eve and the founder of Peaceful Science at PeacefulScience.org. Joshua, welcome to The Rational View. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming and, and talking to us. I'm very interested to hear your views on uh, evolution, creation, and and religion, and how that interacts with science. You've, um, I've read some of your biography online. There's a lot of stuff about you online uh, as an author. Uh, You've stated that your family uh, during your upbringing was very anti-evolution. Could you tell me about your your upbringing, your, your religious upbringing? Yeah, I grew up in Southern California to, in a family of Indian immigrants, uh, Christian. Uh, we were young earth creationists. Uh, you know, we read scripture and it really seemed like a, uh, like a, you know, Adam and Eve were relatively recent in the past. And, you know, I just was a young earth creationist early on. I was also a science student as well and really, really loved science and was drawn to it. And of course, we all know the tensions and, and, the, and the conflict even between those two views of, of uh, two ways of seeing our past, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what I write about kind of is, I would say, the, like the, the hard-won <laughs> resolutions and, uh, and pathways that I kind of worked out through that upbringing mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. I engaged with science. So, w- was your family a part of an organized religion? Is there a particular um, a particular religion that you were a member of that espoused this view? Well, Christian, right? So you know, we were Christians. If you know much about Southern California, it's kind of like a pretty. Uh, there's a lot of mega churches there. Everything from um, you know something called Calvary Church, Calvary Chapel, 
to uh, Crystal Cathedral to uh, to I mean, there's just a ton of gigantic churches out there. So it's kind of like a big um, it's, it's a particular type of uh, Christian culture out there that we were we were pretty involved in, um, and there was a lot of people around us that thought really the same way about it. Um, so it wasn't really until much later that I encountered Christians that, that saw things differently. So it's kind of the, um, what I would consider the, the, the evangelical Christian, um, mindset or, or, you know, not, not a particular, you're not Catholic. You're not, you're Protestant, I assume. Yeah, I mean, so some people would call it like a non-denominational Protestant. I mean, since then, I've really grown a lot more connected to different denominations and learning about them. I still, I mean, another way it's been put is like, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about the church being a house with many rooms and there's the hallways between the rooms. And so um, I've always been a person who's gravitated to the hallways between the denominations, um, the denominational rooms. And, and I'm often kind of poking my head in different denominational denominational context and learning about them. Right now I'm a visiting scholar with the Southern Baptist Convention, really learning about that a lot. I was also an advisor for a Lutheran uh, seminary for, for a while. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's an interesting diversity in the church, which, uh, you know, along, w- you know, with some common ground. And I think that's one thing that also I kind of have to learn. I mean, one of the things that, that was, um, surprising to me, honestly, when I first started learning about it, is Christians are really just thought very differently about origins. And that's where uh, some of the organizations out there have done a lot of good by just making a lot of those Christians more known. I mean, I thought that all Christians really just thought the same thing uh, about these things. And that wasn't true, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not only that, um, I thought that the view I had as a young earth creationist was the traditional view that Christians have really had over the last couple thousand years. That's not true either. <laughs> I think probably one of the most uh, the most striking things that has had an impact on my thinking on this stuff is studying history of like what people actually really thought about things and why. Oh, that's very interesting. And as you start looking at that, you just find out on an evidential basis, there's just a lot of claims about that people throw out there as obvious that are just not true. I mean, it's not it's, it, they're black and white issues. It's just not true what uh, what we were told. Now that doesn't mean, for example, here creationism is wrong. But it does mean that the you know the type of young earth creationism that we see at AIG, for example, that's not traditional in some pretty important respects. <laughs> and, so AIG is Answers in Genesis, right? Yeah, Ken Ham's um, Ken Ham's uh, you know the Ark Encounter and things like that. And you know, that doesn't I mean that alone doesn't mean they're wrong. But uh, but for me, it was a it was a it was a really uh, important realization to realize like oh, it's not. The issue isn't always even science here. Sometimes it's just like a truthful account of history. And you start looking at history and you start realizing, oh, these these ideas actually have very different origins than than what I thought. Um, and, and there's actually an opportunity, I would say, in the Christian faith to have people who disagree about what Scripture says but agree that it's authoritative and sit down and actually have rational conversations about what it means. And how to think about it, and that space to kind of have uncertainty to to, to think through it, um, and to ask questions, um, I think is really important. In fact, I think when people don't experience that in the Christian faith, that that's a that's a very reasonable reason for why they left. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Like if you know if it's just a bunch of closed answers that aren't very good, I mean, what's the point of hanging on to it anyways, right? <laughs> <laughs> agreed, agreed. So. What pathway did you take to 
realize or to question uh, the creationism story that you've been given? What brought you to accept evolution? I assume you accept evolution as the proper scientific description of... Yeah, so right now, I mean, I, you talk about where I started out. Where I am now is I see an overwhelming amount of evidence for common descent, um, meaning that we share uh, ancestors with the great apes. I, I, I think that uh, there's just so many patterns in the data that have quantitative explanations and common descent that, that well, God, of course, could have created things to look this way. There's no other explanation for it that we've been given, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of where things stand on that. So you're asking the path from here to there. Well, um, I'd say it was probably three things. Uh, probably the first thing for me was actually understanding some of the stuff I'm telling you about history <laughs> and realizing that there's actually a, a broader range of views and some of the stuff is up for debate. And so understanding that while I could see how one could interpret Genesis in a, uh, a young earth creationist way, I was very having a hard time understanding why I was boxed into that. Why was that the one that we were required to take? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. The interpretation of, of the, of the Bible. It, it, I think there's a, there's an, as many interpretations as there are Bible readers. Well, maybe, but I mean, we can say that some interpretations are wrong <laughs> and you can make wrong claims about certain interpretations and some are better than others. But to think that I was boxed in specifically the young earth creationist reading I, I couldn't understand that. Um, and, and specifically, what really the, one of the key things that really changed my mind about, or really made that obvious, was understanding Augustine's understanding of a literal reading of Genesis. Augustine wrote a book called The Literal Reading of Genesis, like, uh, and his literal reading was nothing like uh, Young Earth Creationist readings. Now, Augustine was, uh, was a saint, uh, or he was in the church like in the third century AD, is, is that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, the basic claim that the young earth creationists make, this is like the pseudo-history, is that the only reason why people are questioning our interpretation is because of the challenge, the recent challenge of science. But if you go back before evolution or you go back before that, no one ever was thinking about this stuff. It's just obvious and plain and clear. That's, that's a historical claim is the thing. Hmm. That's a historical claim. And it's testable with evidence. And, I mean, it's not quite scientific evidence, but you can look to see, well, did people actually think about this stuff differently? You just take, like I said, Augustine's literal view and compare it to theirs, and it's, it's very, very different. And I think that's important because it just basically shows, oh, they have their history wrong here. <laughs> that's actually not where this came from. Augustine was, was an, a very interesting figure, and I, I'd be interested to know, what, what was Augustine's view on the literal interpretation of Genesis? What, how does that differ from your literal interpretation that you were taught as a child? Well, so, for example, in Young Earth Creationism, it's really important to reject the idea of any death of any kind, including of animals before the fall, right? Okay. And um, the reason why is that ends up becoming, uh, I mean, there, there's a couple of historical reasons why that arises. It has to do with a particular type of theodicy that's, um, that they're trying to kind of build up. And, and partly, too, is it kind of really highlights a strong conflict with evolution. I think that that has value in that context in, in, in a backwards sort of way, right? And uh, it just turns out that uh, that <laughs> Augustine thinks that that's a ridiculous idea. He thinks that if you're going to take it literally, you have to reject that. And he gives textual reasons why you have to reject it. And he even goes so far as to say that, you know, the fact that anyone would think that that's what Scripture is teaching is clear evidence of the fall. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it, he, he has, like, no sympathy for that view. And, and this is within a literal context. He's not saying we need to take this non-literally. He's just saying, if you're going to take it literally, that, that, that's just a ridiculous idea. Now, maybe Augustine's wrong, but I think it was really striking to see how he just could not see the sense in that, that view, right? Um, and uh, his discussion specifically of human death is really interesting. He, um, he talks about how... Um, God said that the same day that um, Adam eats of the fruit, that they'll die. But except for that doesn't happen, right? They, they're exiled from the garden instead. And so he's really wrestling with that. Because if you're going to take it literally, well, then how do you deal with this fact that God said you're going to die right away, but you don't? <laughs> yes. Literally, that's a that's a contradiction. Yeah, especially when you think about your own creation of saying that day always means, you know, <laughs> um, 24 hours, right? Except for right there in the text, there's a day that is... I mean, something is going on there. Now, there's different ways to resolve it. And what the best way to resolve it is, I, uh, um, you know, I don't know. I'm not an exegete. But um, but I, I think Augustine's view is interesting because he resolves it in a way that I didn't expect but made a lot of sense in some level. He said that, well, what's going on here is that it's a spiritual death that he's talking about. And that is literal because that's actually a a more salient reality from God's point of view than ours. So we're concerned about the physical death, but God's concerned about the spiritual death. And that is a literal, uh, a literal reading of it. And um, that, that's So that, that means that Adam died spiritually when he ate the apple? That's what he would say. He would say that day, that very day, he died spiritually. And that isn't, I'm trying to take this allegorically or metaphorically. This is taking it, Literally, because that's what's more literal to God, and that's part of the message here. And what does it mean to die spiritually? Um, so there's different ways that people have thought about it. I think what Augustine is getting at is like a separation from God. So, you know, he was made to be in communion with God, and now there was a separation that was never supposed to be there. And there was going to be consequences. So that's a common way it's talked about. Okay. Um, but the key thing is that he's saying that that is a literal reading. And, and to see it as physical is actually a, um, a non-minority. Now, getting into all these little details of hermeneutics is interesting to some level. And I mean, I, I think it's interesting. But the key point is that it's a historical claim being made that, that everyone thought this until the challenge of science. And then everyone's kind of compromising with mainstream science now. That just turns out not to be true. I mean, people were wondering about these passages a long, long time ago. I mean, and one of the big things that people wonder about, too, to be clear, is were there people outside the garden? That's something people have been wondering about for thousands of years. Um, you know, where did Cain's wife come from? It's really clear when you read Genesis that it's talking about a fairly narrow area. I mean, it's demarcating particular boundaries to this garden. The garden doesn't span across the entire earth. And, you know, even as a young earth creationist, I wondered about people outside the garden, right? And so that's, that's the idea that my book really expands upon. But anyways, getting back to the story of how I actually changed. So that was one, is like saying, well, wait a minute. These historical claims about how to read Genesis aren't true, and maybe there's more space here than I thought. From what I understand, the uh, the young earth creationist movement is almost a response to Darwin's origin of the species. It's about you know 200 years old, in, as far as I can tell historically. There, there wasn't a need for it before that. Well, you could say that it starts a little bit before then, what I would, whether I'd say uh, with modern geology, right? So the, the realization of the early geologists, most of whom were Christian, by the way, <laughs> that, uh, that the earth of deep time, right? So that's like a little bit before Darwin, not much, a little bit before. 
And, um, and there, and then, you know, it was a very niche idea. It's the flood geologists. Most of them were Seventh-day Adventists that just, uh, just took a different take on, on geology. And then Darwinism comes along, of course, right. And evolution. And that, um, and that was a hard thing for the church to deal with largely because of human evolution. It wasn't the age of the earth. Right. So the majority of Christians were not young earth creationists at this point. Most of them were, um, world earth creationists, even most fundamentalists. And this is something that people even miss. Most fundamentalists, uh, if you look at for things like the Schofield Bible, they thought the earth was old. There was other eras before Adam and Eve, right? But the big, the big question, what the Scopes trial was about, it was not about the age of the earth. You know, when I was joining Brian, uh, was the key lawyer at the Scopes trial, um, arguing against evolution. And it wasn't even, he had no problem with evolution in the plant and animal kingdom and as the way how God created things. The key problem was human evolution. That's where the sticking point was. And in, and if you um, understand much about the Christian faith, that, that shouldn't be surprising. I mean, there's very little theology hung up in Genesis 1 in the particular timeline going on there. But there's quite a bit that hangs on how we understand Adam and Eve. Anyway, so that was one piece. Then the other piece was um, looking at the science. And um, I'm really fortunate in that I... Um, was able to get a phenomenal scientific training. I got to see um, the data for myself. I got to work with scientists. And there was several really pivotal conversations I had with scientists where they weren't arguing for evolution. They were just explaining how science worked and why they made conclusions about the data the way they did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it very short and simple conversations that ended up being very compelling evidence for evolution. Um, or for common descent, at least. Not evidence that God wasn't involved or anything like that, but just that, hey, it really looks this way, like we share common ancestors. And what struck me about this, too, is that, first of all, the reasoning was very clear and easy to follow. The data was very clear and easy to follow. But it was just never addressed by any of the anti-evolutionist literature I read. Mm -hmm. And that was really surprising in many ways to me it's like do they not know about it or are they hiding it i don't know but like this isn't even being addressed <laughs> um there are exceptions like uh you know michael behe in his book darwin's black box and also edge of evolution in a couple of places he actually does explain evidence for common descent even briefly and i remember reading darwin's black box when i was in high school mm -hmm. and just kind of looking and go wait a minute he has no problem with the common descent of humans and chimpanzees all he's arguing about is things like you know bacteria flagellum but what's actually hanging there what, what why does that really matter mm. it's not theologically relevant to uh, to the majority of christians yeah and so i mean so i mean maybe i mean like it seems like a very esoteric debate about whether or not uh, God was involved in evolution if we can tell it you know scientifically i think there's a very good reason to think that we wouldn't be able to tell either way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the really key issues are, is, you know, how do we, how do we think about, I mean, does it really seem like there's common, common descent? It does, I think. And I'm happy to explain that more than, so then what does that mean about what we think we're hearing about our history from scripture? Is that not true? Does it have to be radically reinterpreted? Or how can these things be understood together? Now, most Christians have really understood this to mean that you have to really radically reinterpret Genesis. That's probably been the dominant view. But as I looked at it more and more, I just couldn't understand their reasoning. And it often seems like they were making appeals to science that they didn't really understand, even 
pro-evolution Christians. Mm-hmm. That, that's common, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's very common. I mean, what's really interesting about it being a scientist in the space is, I mean, I, I've had the opportunity to actually see the data for myself and really come to conclusions for myself. What, what did you find uh, most convincing? What, what I think the genetic evidence is, is, is amazing. I agree. Uh, because you can make, especially when you couple that with things like neutral theory and common descent, with neutral theory, you can make very precise mathematical predictions about patterns you'll see in the human genome relative to other species. Very precise, precise predictions. And when you, when you say neutral theory, you're talking about um, mutations in non-coding DNA? Well, the neutral theory is kind of what's replaced Darwinism in science. Oh, okay. I mean, um, and it's just, so right now, most scientists will, will agree that it's either some sort of neutral or near neutral theory of evolution. The basic idea is the vast majority of mutations um, are not positively or negatively selected. They're, they're neutral, the vast majority. Right. Okay. Now, there's interesting questions about how that links up with the stuff that is positively selected, how that relates with function and all that. But, but, the, but the key thing is the majority of them are not actually selected for now that's important. So, so what actually what is the driver of these things? Well, it turns out because they're not selected for, the key driver is the rate at which they occur and the amount of time that's passed. And so they end up becoming a molecular clock. And now, if you understand some more, you'll find that's not just that there is a molecular clock; there ends up being a, a large number of molecular clocks uh, that that you you can use to cross calibrate one uh, to one another. And, wow. Um, and you can and you can cross check that with a whole bunch of other measurable things. So you can directly measure, for example, the rate at which certain mutations happen in human time scale. Right? You can you can directly measure that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, for example, take the genomes of parents and children and ask what are the mutations between the parents and children and see what types there are. That'll give you a measure of rate. Right? Yeah. Right. Right. And then you use that to. to go back in time. Yeah. So that gives you a rate and, you, and that gives you the, basically the, how quickly many different clocks are ticking. And then you can ask, you know, well, are all those clocks ticking in a way such that they have like a common starting point in the past when you look at the differences between humans and chimpanzees, for example, right? I see. You're looking at different areas on the genome that are, are changing at different rates, for example, and then you're projecting those back. Yeah. Or different types of mutations is where it's particularly useful, right? Okay. So, Certain types of mutations, so transitions happen a lot more frequently than transversions, for example. That's just one example, but um, but there's many, many more, right? And what we find out is that um, that you can you can basically cross calibrate all of this and see that by several different clocks you you get um, you know you get numbers that really match pretty closely what you would get from the fossil record of when species diverged. And wow. So, so when was that? When was our last common ancestor with the chimpanzees, roughly speaking? Do you know? Well, it's just a debate. I mean, it's somewhere between, you know, it's somewhere between six to eight million years ago. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. That's recent. And one of, the, one of the hard parts, actually, about human evolution is about there's a gap in the um, fossil record having to do with climate shifts and things like that, where we don't have very many fossils about Two million years ago to about four million years ago or so. That's part of the reason why. Uh, uh, I mean, it's approximately that. I'm getting very rough numbers. That's part of the reason. That's actually part of the the distinction between Homo and um, and Lucy, for example, is just that, that we're kind of seeing a little bit stronger 
uh, anatomical difference is at least in part because uh, because the fossil record is sparse in that range. <laughs> wow. What we do see is a progression of forms, and there's been a lot more evidence about that. That's still, um, I mean, and, and I don't want to take away from that. That is important evidence. Uh, it, would, it would be meaningful if it was entirely absent, right? And it's meaningful that it's there. Um it is quite striking, though, um, how much more quantitative and precise and voluminous the DNA data is. I mean, I think that's just really um, there. I mean, I remember, I mean, I think the right way to understand it is that if God wanted to make clear to us that he made us apart from common descent, it had been very easy to do that by giving us very different genomes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't. That either means that common descent is true um, or someone has to come up with a reason why he created us with a genome that looks like common descent. And no one's really been able to give a solid reason from that, as far as I can see. Indeed. Um, and at the very least, and I think this is important to me too, and this gets to the third issue. So the first one was uh, understanding scripture. The second one was science. The third, I would say, is like a theological issue, because I was very intent on disproving evolution. I think when I realized that about the genome, I think there's this point where it kind of struck me that, wow, even if evolution is false, God certainly isn't as concerned about disproving it as I am. <laughs> uh, that's a, a difficult realization. And I think his priorities are very different. And, and, and I think when you think about it, it's a very strange sort of set of priorities for God to have had. And so... When he was creating, I mean, he could have, right? He could have just made it very clear that way. Um, but the reality is he didn't. Uh, and, you know, if you, and I started reading scripture. And I remember one of these passages that really used to hung over my, uh, you know, kind of kind of be like the, you know, almost like your conscience in the back of your head. <laughs> as I went through kind of my anti-evolutionist days where it says that Jesus, um, you know, facing a skeptical generation says that, you know, he's going to offer a skeptical generation just one sign. Uh, it's a sign of Jonah which means that he's going to go into the earth and he's going to die and rise again. And, uh, and I'm not saying that that's the only miracle on that that's out there, but what Jesus is saying is that, you know, if you come skeptical asking for a sign, he'll give you a sign. He's going to give you one sign. <laughs> and, and if you can't actually deal with that one, it's going to be very hard to see anything else. And I remember thinking about that and just thinking about how I was really trying to use disproving evolution as a sign. Mm-hmm. It's a crutch to some people to, to have to uh, have scientific evidence to support their God. And this, this is something that's come up in my discussions with other religious scientists is that, you know, faith is meaningless if there's evidence. Well, I don't know about that. Look, I mean, what do you mean by faith, right? If there's evidence of God, you don't need faith, right? If, if, if there's scientific evidence that you can prove God exists then there's no need for faith. Right? I don't know if that's how I understand it. I think that um, faith is, I think, best understood as trust. I mean, that's probably the closest analog I can come up with. And it's not only trust, but I think it's very close to that. I think even if there's evidence, you have to decide if you're going to trust that evidence or not. Um, and, you know, you trust the evidence for common descent. You probably haven't even seen the majority of it. Um, I'm, I'm looking for it right now. Yeah, and I think that that's what faith is. It's kind of, you know, deciding what you're going to put your trust in, in that sense. And I don't think evidence uh, works in conflict with faith that way. I think 
I mean, give me a break. Just look at society. There's an immense amount of evidence that uh, that the vaccines are safe and effective, but people don't. I mean, people don't have faith in them. They don't trust them. Some people, many people don't. You know what I mean, right? Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't have the capability to assess the evidence, which is the problem. And then they end up trusting their leaders, and not all of their leaders are are leading them in the right direction. <laughs> It's misplaced trust and misplaced distrust, but evidence doesn't somehow remove the need for trust. I mean, scientists in that type of faith I'm talking about, we have a lot of faith. We trust our colleagues to be giving trustworthy reports of the evidence. And we usually trust experts in, in science when they're talking about their field of expertise because we usually trust them. I'm saying usually because we also have safeguards against blind trust, right? <laughs> Uh, yes, and it's a, it's science is supposed to be a self-correcting enterprise, and it may not self-correct immediately, but over time, uh, when enough people can't reproduce a result, then science will turn and 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 backtrack on towards a, a closer um, correspondence to observations, shall we say? We should hope so, and hopefully that does happen. And sometimes it can go a little wild, but I mean, I, I kind of come to find science in general to be a very trustworthy community. Like, I mean, I haven't looked directly at like all of the underlying data in the trials for the vaccines, for example. Right. Sure. But, um, but I trust that on some basic level, it's not massive fraud. Right. I think that, I think that where errors are made, it's kind of made on a different level than that in, in most cases. And there's also safeguards in terms of, uh, real consequences for people if they lie about stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, so I do think that science is trustworthy in that sense. Um, but um, I think for me, I had to kind of figure out what's the grounding for my faith. Is it because, am I a Christian because evolution is false? Or am I a Christian because I've really encountered and found the evidence that Jesus really rose from the dead? And I do think that there's evidence for that too. Now, we don't have to debate that or argue it or go over it. I mean, that's not the point, but it's not about fideism. I'm not saying that you just have to have faith without evidence or evidence-free faith. I'm just saying that if we're skeptical, Jesus does offer us evidence. It's just not evidence against evolution. It's evidence that he rose from the dead. Right. So in terms of your, your, uh, your evolutionary progression <laughs> from creation to evolution, um, you've obviously uh, looked at a lot of, of what, you know, answers in Genesis states, and you're very aware of, of that. And I think you've had some run-ins with, with Ken Ham. You, have you interviewed him or you've... you've... Uh, he's referred to me without name a few times. So <laughs> most recently after the Fox News article that came out about my book, which was, um, you know, really seen by a lot of people. Maybe that's how you found out about me. I don't know. Um, but, um, yeah, so he, he posted some fit stuff on Facebook, but that's not the first time. There's been a couple other times where he's done that. Uh, he hasn't yet gotten to the point where he wants to address me by name for better or for worse. <laughs> okay. I find from, from my understanding of, of theology and of Christian faith that, you know, anyone who requires this extra belief to be Christian is really not doing their theology properly. I think there's some statements in the Bible about adding requirements to faith, uh, not being, you know, appropriate from a, for a, someone from a follower. Yeah. So I, I, the way I put it is that, um, 
Now, whether or not uh, Ken Ham is correct about young earth creationism, I, I, I think that he really misunderstands some key things about the gospel and about who Jesus is. He often talks uh, uh, with the idea that, that creation science is the foundation of the Christian faith. In fact, that's even what the gospel depends on. That's even what their uh, their castle metaphor uh, mission statement is. It has uh, it has basically the foundation being creation science, on which there's this big castle Christianity, and then you kind of have these crosses, which are kind of decorations on the castle. And you know, he always makes sure to put a crack through the cross. Uh, that's not anything like the person I encounter in the Gospels when I read it. He's not an innocent bystander and threatened of just being cracked because of some sort of human argument about this. And creation science didn't even exist back then. That is not the foundation of our faith. I think what we find out is Jesus is the foundation. And um, the question is, like, why would he misrepresent or misunderstand something so fundamental about the Christian faith? I think it's actually it's become pretty important in the type of young earth creationism that he's uh, purveying. And to be clear, um, not all young earth creationists even agree with him on this. Many young earth creationists strongly disagree with Ken Ham on how he, how he handles this. Mm-hmm. Um, the way how he's doing it is really designed um, and, and, and is effective in creating an immense amount of fear in the people that listen to him. Because Jesus is this key central thing about the Christian faith. And if he's really at risk... And the only ones really defending them are, uh, are you know, creation scientists. Well, that, that really sets things up in a particular way, right? It sets you up for a lot of fear, a lot of codependence, and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, you know it, it directs all of your attention to, and it puts your trust in all of the wrong things. Fear does unlock wallets. Yeah. You know, even if that young earth creationism is true, what he's saying about Jesus isn't. And the reality is that, you know, um, whether or not the earth is old or young, whether or not evolution is true or false, uh, Jesus really did rise from the dead. At least that's what I think. And that's good enough reason. That is the key, the key message of, of the Christian faith right there. Yeah. It's like that he's greater. And, and, you know, look, you may not think that Jesus is really who I think he is, but just go with me for a moment. If it's true, it should be obvious that it's greater. I mean, think about science. Science can't tell us even that racism is wrong. It doesn't give us a, it doesn't really give us a way to be good. If it's really true, now maybe you think it's false, but just go with me in a thought experiment. I mean, I think that it's really true. There is like a goodness we find in Jesus that, um, that extends beyond science. It's not in conflict with science necessarily, but it, it gives us a way to engage with other other realities that we can't in science. And that's that's good. In that sense, I think that Jesus is greater than what I found in science. To be clear, I love science, too. Yeah, science but, isn't, isn't set up as a moral um, decision-making process. Science allows us to learn about the universe that we find ourselves in and make predictions about it. And that's that's what the process of science is all about. It's not about, um, it doesn't pretend to be about making moral messages. Although this seems to be what the young earth creationists are trying to say when they say that evolution uh, leads to Satan and it leads to evil because there's no purpose to it. But science isn't about creating a purpose. That's what, you know, people bring 
people bring to this from their own philosophy purpose. It's not, it's not science's job to give you purpose. <laughs> yeah. So this is another part where I think the fact that I'm a scientist has been a huge advantage in this because when it gets right down to it, for most of the questions that we really care about, science doesn't really answer. Now, it does often put constraints. There's certain answers that we can say that that that's probably not true. <laughs> um, it, it can rule out bad bad answers. <laughs> yeah, so it can rule out some bad answers. So I'm not trying to say it has no say, but it doesn't tell us nearly as much. And so typically, when stuff in science comes to the public, um, especially if it's exciting science. There is the part that the evidence is constraining, but there's also the stories that the scientists are telling that are consistent with that evidence, we hope, right? Mm -hmm. But they also extend beyond the evidence, and they're allowed to do that. Um, but we have to be able to distinguish what is the evidence constraining and what actually is the story that they're trying to fill in gaps in. And, and the fact of the matter is that we have the right to disagree with scientists about those places where they're extending beyond the evidence. Mm-hmm. And to maybe even tell different stories. And that's not in conflict with science. And I think at times uh, the Christian community has really struggled to make that distinction. And to be clear, I also think sometimes the atheist community has really struggled with that. So it's really easy to get up and tell an atheistic story about evolution. That, I mean, it could be true. It's not in conflict with the evidence. So I'm, that's not what the issue is. But that's not necessarily what the evidence tells us. I mean, there's other things that could be going on, too. A great example of this, if you say that, you know, you know, evolution, uh, you know, an atheistic evolution, you, you know, doesn't require God to make everything. Well, actually, science has no way of determining whether or not God was required or if he was involved or not. I mean, we just don't have a way of doing that. And there's, it's, it's fairly trivial to propose models where God's actually doing things that has a big influence on evolution. But we just science is limited. It would just not be able to really find them. So it's just not a question that science can adjudicate. So the real the real thing is that you know evolution is pretty compatible with atheism, but it's also pretty compatible with, with Christian views. And you know, you can tell an atheistic story with it. You can tell a Christian story with it, <laughs> um, and they're both consistent with the evidence on a broad level, and maybe even in a detailed level. Um, and and that's okay. It's just that science doesn't answer that question, and we can be okay with that. Yeah, I find. Um Obviously, science brings naturalistic explanations to the table because that's what we have to work with in a naturalistic universe. You know, we can't um, determine the motives of any sort of supernatural entities and, and their means of interacting with nature if they're supernatural uh, seem to be difficult because we have all of the we understand all of the things of that are interacting with nature from the physics. Um, so I've always struggled with the question of what how does supernatural influence natural? If it's, if supernatural is influencing natural, then it's something that you can look at through science because it's having an impact on na nature and you could measure that impact. Well, so the thing about it is that there's not a really good philosophical way to determine supernatural versus yeah. natural. That's, that's probably not, there's probably not even helpful categories. Um, because like, for example, let's say there was some sort of supernatural thing out there, let's say there was angels in the world, and we could um, we could actually see places where they're interacting with our world. Well, we wouldn't call them a supernatural; we would call them a natural entity. Exactly, exactly. And then you you would learn about them through science. <laughs> yeah. So I think a better way to understand this are, are the things that are part of the regular operations of the world that science can take hold of and understand, and the things that are beyond that. 
And for a fact, we know there are things that are beyond science. And, and, that, and that's entirely okay. Um, I mean, the other way, um, which is another distinction, which doesn't really map well into our scientific categories, is basically is it created or not? So the real distinction I think you see in theology isn't really between supernatural and natural, but between created and the creator. But once again, how do you actually make any, any sort of like, uh, I mean, how do you how do you test whether some phenomenon is caused by the creator or creation or some combination of that? I mean, that's not something you can do, right? I guess that's what B, Behe's trying to do with his uh, intelligent design uh, theory is to try to say that he can determine things have been, quote unquote, designed, uh, although there's no real way to apply that at this point. Yeah, what I'd say is that they're kind of reacting, I would say, to some overreach by scientists. And this is the one place I agree with the idea. I'm, I'm kind of out there as a critic of them, but this is the place where I agree with them. Um, so don't shoot me. But I think that, um, I think probably, even when you go back to when idea was formed in particular, most of the stories that are put out there about evolution are inherently atheistic. And it's a bit of an overreach. Honestly, science doesn't actually tell us that God wasn't involved, but that's often how it's been talked about. And I think they, you know, I think they're reacting against that in a very scientific sort of way. They're trying to find positive evidence that, you know, that natural processes alone aren't sufficient. But I think this really misses the point. There's a far easier argument to make, which is the one I've already made, <laughs> which is that, you know, Science doesn't actually tell us. There's like some stories being told about the evidence that might be consistent with it, but that doesn't mean God wasn't involved. Maybe he was. And I think it's very hard for science to adjudicate that. Sure, sure. I mean, you can always, that, that caveat hangs over every, every naturalistic statement you made. You know, if what I'm seeing is reality, then this is the explanation for it, or you know, someone may have tinkered with it. Well, well another way to put it is this. Is like even, even a correct solid scientific explanation only attempts to be a partial explanation. Mm -hmm. In what way? Science doesn't give total explanations. Right? And to say that God wasn't involved is to make a total claim. Science sometimes doesn't make explanations at all. If you look at quantum mechanics as, as the basis of theory, I mean, we have no idea why it does this. All we can do is, is shut up and calculate. That's the you know, yeah. generations of physicists have been told to stop quest questioning this. We obviously know it's right. We don't know why it's right. We don't understand how it's operating like this, but we can predict very accurately what's going to happen. That, that's it. So the thing about it is that's kind of more of a humble telling like a, of the science, which is very clear about the stuff that we do seem to know, but also is just very clear. We don't know everything, you know, I think if we had done that, I'm speaking with a Royal V we to people who were, I mean, I was obviously a, a, a student back when idea was started, but if you go back to like the eighties and the nineties, if, if scientists aligned with evolution, had probably been a bit more careful about how we talked about this stuff in a way that made more space for belief and, was more attentive to the limits of science, it's very well possible that we wouldn't have had some of the strong reactions that we've had against, uh, against good science. Um, you know, those are prior generations. That wasn't, that wasn't me per se, but you know, I'm, I'm a scientist now I'm mid career. I just think we can find a better way to talk about this stuff that makes space for people who think differently than us. And I think that there's good in that. 
I think that there's a way for us to invite all society to engage with good science with us. Yeah. As a scientist, maybe I'm biased in this, but I feel like all the blame isn't at the, at the feet of the scientists for this. A lot of the, the blame is at the feet of the, the people on putting scientific ed- education on trial and trying to push religion into scientific classrooms. So fault is one thing, but I would say that we have higher responsibility for sure. I mean, if you're a scientist, uh, did you, do you ever get government funding? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I have. I mean, they tax poor people to give us money, man. I think that comes with certain entailments. We have certain responsibilities to society, even if they're not part of our job description. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we're really here to serve all of society, not just our political tribe, not just our religious tribe. Um, we're, I mean, part of what we're doing, part of why we're here is to serve the common good. So, yes, you're right that I don't think it's all the scientists' fault. But I do think that we have higher responsibility. Agreed. Agreed. Can you tell me a little bit about your book? The, you've, you've published a book called The Genealogical Adam and Eve. Um, tell, tell me about the thesis in this book and, and why you went forward with this. Well, you know, as I was kind of explaining, um, for me, it was started with early scripture. Then I was looking at the science and then also kind of really reorienting around, you know, about, am I supposed to follow Jesus or anti-evolution? You know, be anti-evolution, right? But, so I kind of came to a point where I came really to peace with these things. But I looked, um, as I looked across the conversation, I saw that a lot of people were really struggling with this. And in fact, there was a great deal of misunderstanding about what science really demanded of us, or really what it demanded of Christian belief. And for a little while, I was even working with uh, Christians that were trying to help uh, the church come to terms with evolution at Biologos. I was just surprised at how um, how much they appealed to science, and but they didn't have the science correct on this, too. They were... Um, I think they, like a lot of other people, were really caught up on this idea that if evolution is true, we have to really revise a great deal of Christian belief. Hmm. So, um, I mean, and I kept on asking people to explain it to me, and I kept on finding out that they just didn't really understand the science. And so that's really where my book came in. What I found, and this is the surprising claim of my book, which if you read it, you'll find out this is actually just well-settled and established science mm-hmm. um, that I wasn't even the first person to publish. And I'm not the first person to come with this. It's just that um, it was really underappreciated. It turns out that um, if Adam and Eve were real people in a real past, um, even as recent as just 6,000 years ago, they could have been de novo created in uh, a divine garden. And then, you know, when they fell, they could have exited the garden and encountered other people out there. And as they interbred, they would have become the ancestors of everyone in just a few thousand years. So if they lived just 6,000 years ago, even by, you know, 1 AD, before Jesus walks the earth and the Great Commission, everyone across the entire earth would descend from Adam and Eve. And that sounds like a young earth creationist account, um, except for the one loophole about people outside the garden, except for some young earth creationists have wondered about that, too. Right. Okay. And so the idea is that maybe there was people God created a different way outside the garden. Um maybe through a providentially governed process of uh, common descent. Um, and that would be a way how both these stories were true. They were both literally true. Both evolution is true and, um, you know, a literal account of Genesis is true. Now, of course, if a literal account of Genesis is true, just about any other thing about Genesis could be true too. Um, and so uh, they just opens up a wide range of possibilities and we're more or less trying to figure out where the conflict really lies, because it's not clear if there is one. Okay. And the, so the thesis of this is that as you go back in generations, uh, you have more and more 
grandparents, basically. So at some point, the number of your ancestors is equal to the population. So everyone would be descended from any person in that population. Is that effectively what the, the genealogical... Yeah, yeah. So it has to do... The key thing where people got confused is not understanding there's a distinction between genetic and genealogical ancestry. So one of the first objections you'll hear from people is they'll try and, you know, you know, explain down to me or whoever that, well, you know, mitochondrial Eve is, you know, over 100,000 years ago. And same thing with Y chromosome M. But we're not talking about that. Those are genetic common ancestors, right? We're talking about genealogical common ancestors, and they work in a very different way. Um, so... Turns out that genealogical ancestors um, are far more recent. And you were kind of talking about some things like this. They're also far more numerous. So what we know is that actually um, uh, in a fairly short amount of time, uh, everyone either becomes ancestors of everyone or ancestors of no one because our lineage entirely dies out. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of like a phase transition, if you know what that is, if, mm -hmm. for the physics people here. But it's, it's basically it's, it's either or. You either become ancestors of everyone or ancestors of no one. There's no in between. And it's a very short time period in terms of history where before, you know, because we're going exponentially, you know, two to the N generations. <laughs> That's how many yeah. ancestors each person has. Yeah, exactly. So it happens very quickly. Now, there's this theoretical possibility that there is a population out there that's been isolated for a long period of time. Except for when we look at the genetic data, it just doesn't seem like that's the that's the standard pattern at all in, in, in human history. We don't really tend to have, uh, you know, isolated populations that are isolated for that long. Um, so, you know, our best estimates just say that it'll take about, you know, two to two to four thousand years for um, for people to become ancestors of everyone. That's really quick. <laughs> and that means, that, you know, Adam and Eve, if they're real people in a real past and there's debate about when they are, when they might have lived. But if they're real people in a real past, well, then they're ancestors of everyone. That's what the best science tells us. And, uh, and so, and, and now, of course, we also may not have any DNA from them, too, because the majority of our ancestors, this is the surprising thing, don't actually pass us any DNA. They're really our ancestors. There's like a biological chain of descent, hmm. but, uh, but we don't get any DNA from them. Wow. And so that's part of the reason why we wouldn't be able to tell if they were de novo created. So there's really just no evidence uh, for or against God specially creating a particular couple and, and you know, in, in our distant past. That's just not the sort of question that science can really adjudicate. And uh, now you might think that that's not true. Okay, fine, it's not true, but there's no evidence against it. And it really comes down to whether or not we trust Scripture and what we think it says. And if you're an atheist, you see no reason to trust Scripture. Fine. Okay. If you're a Christian, you probably do trust it. And there's debate among Christians about what it means, but that debate is now kind of really disconnected from what the evidence is really telling us. And so, and the, and, the, and the genetic evidence, I should say. So what we're dealing with now is really just a hermeneutical or like a how do we interpret scripture debate instead of a fight between Christians and science. And I think that really substantially diffuses the conflict. So that's the basic idea. I mean, my, my, my uh, belief is, is that, you know, as this becomes more known, um, a lot of the intensity of the uh, creation evolution debate is just going to, is just going to deflate and go away. And people still disagree about this stuff, but it won't be nearly as much at stake. Mm -hmm. that, I think that's a laudable goal to, to, you know, to provide uh, consistent theological 
um, ground so that, you know, there's a lot of Christians out there and we don't need them to be attacking science. Uh, we don't want that. That doesn't help anyone that, you know, it drives people away from your religion and it makes the scientists angry. <laughs> yeah. And I think, so I think this is actually where it's been an interesting thing to observe atheists and how they respond to this. So some atheists, I think, respond the way you are, which I, I'd say is a really positive response. You realize, I think rightly, that, that, you know, kind of like the ethical response is to try and serve the common good, right? And to find common ground with people and to advance science in society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, there's also another type of atheist um, that responds in a very different way. <laughs> they can be kind of upset because they feel like they have uh, this big club against their, uh, you know, religion that they now no longer have. And I think that just reveals a lot. Uh, and it kind of, you know, kind of exposes which atheists are really there to advance science and serve the common good and which ones are there uh, more because they're anti-religion and they're trying to advance atheism. And I think, um, I think that there, there's a pretty clear choice about which of those paths is better, right? I'd have to agree with you there. yeah and i'll I'll tell you it's the same thing on the christian side to be clear i think part of what my book does is it really it really kind of forces some choices from people and and it's really reconfigures the conversation so you'll see for example in the old earth creationist camp there's a group that are realizing you know this is really about scripture and how we interpret it Mm -hmm. and this makes space for my beliefs and that's really helpful and i'm thankful for it and then there's another group that are like um who get upset and, and feel a need to reject it because it's consistent with evolution, but they, but they're struggling to find scriptural reasons for it. And, and they're not very coherent. Right. And I think it really exposes like, are you really about opposing evolution or are you about affirming certain things in your faith? And I think all too often we all get caught up in, uh, you know, being defined by what we dislike or what we're not rather than uh, what we think is true. Right. And I think if we kind of more focused on the parts that are true, we might find out that some of these things can be true together. Mm-hmm. That's very wise. I, I, I find that in a lot of cases when, when faced with young earth creationist arguments, uh, scientists are um, cast onto the defense to, because basically the, the creationists don't have a, a scientific, a, a holistic scientific theory that as you might state a scientific theory, they're mainly theistic anti-evolutionists. And their goal is to try to poke holes in science and put the scientists on the defensive. And that there's no point in trying to poke holes. There's always going to be holes in science. If there wasn't, we wouldn't be doing science. Uh, you know, the, the holes keep getting smaller. And you, you, if you end up with a god of the gaps, it's not a great theology either. The real response to that is to is to attack the young Earth creationist on the theology. This is and this is exactly I think what you're doing is is to say this is not a required theology for for Christianity. This is a exegesis that that leads to uh, schisms and and pushing people away from the church rather than um, accepting people with different uh, understandings of science. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think we also have to be attentive to the fact that there's different types of young earth creationists. And so Ken Ham is one type of young earth creationist. I think there are far better types of young earth creationists out there. So, um, you know, one person who I've, I've been dialoguing a bit with is uh, Marcus Ross, um, 
who's at Liberty University. We did a debate at a Young Earth Creationist conf- uh, conference in the fall. I mean, that's not home turf for me at all, right? Okay. Um, I showed up and, you know, we decided that we were going to do a joint statement ahead of time. And so he wrote the first draft of this joint statement. And I got to tell you, I was really touched by what he wrote. He recognized that, you know, he actually called me a Christian who has a high view of scripture. Uh, that was his words that he put down there first. We added it a little bit from there, but that's what he said about me, with, unprompted, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a place where he could have easily tried to demonize me. Interesting. And that's that's healthy. That's good. Um, and I think and I think the more we find young earth Christians like that to elevate and engage with them. Look, when it gets right down to it, I think they're wrong. But I think we also have to just have the humility to realize that even if they're wrong, there's always going to be an earth creationist in the world. <laughs> the question is, how do we have, how do we actually engage with the best versions of it that are, that are at least trying to engage in good faith ways with mainstream science and with us and aren't trying to demonize us? I think uh, I think that that would be a far better world than one where it's dominated by those that are trying to demonize us, right? Indeed, I think that that's baby steps in the right direction. Uh, so I think we're we're getting towards the end of our our time slot here, and I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and chatting to me and, and and our listeners about your your journey and and your ideas. It's it's very eye opening, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, I'm going to ask you a quick question before we we close off. That um, I ask a lot of uh, my interviewees. What what science fiction type of reading do you like or, or shows? Oh, I, I mentioned this actually a lot in my book, right? So I, I really like Battlestar Galactica, the new series. So. Oh, the new series. Okay. What about the old one? What's your impression? Did you did you get hooked with the, the old, old one? Is like from before my time, right? Like in the sixties or so, right? Oh, and I think it's a bit more Mormon from what I hear, but. Um, <laughs> But the reboot um, that went on Sci-Fi Channel, I mean, it's just so solid and good. Um, uh, I was uh, I watched that with my uh, my eventually to be wife <laughs> many years ago. I thought, it's just such a solid series and really exploring what it means to be human. You know, artificial intelligence and origins. One of the interesting things about it, not to ruin it, is like the last the season. Sorry, the series finale really ends actually up in the Genesis story in a surprising way. Wow. That's part of the reason why it comes up into my book. Okay. Um, another one that we've really been enjoying is uh, Expanse. Uh, we, we just watched the series finale for now. I mean, there's, there's potentially an opportunity for more seasons, which we think, hope happens. But I think especially the first couple seasons of that were just really, really solidly done. And I thought they were really I've heard great. that one uh, before as well. Yeah? I'm going to have to see if I can find that. So thanks so much for, for coming on the show. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you a Rational View t-shirt. So you can you can show your friends that you've been oh, on the fine. show. Uh, I'll get your details later. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.